Cricket Podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the 29th and final episode of Season 13. I think it will be. Uh, we're recording this on the 28th of March, 2023, if you're listening to this, Winnie or Peggy, uh, and when you're trying to wonder um, what your dad used to do for work back in the day, mm. I make this podcast with, with Jeff, who's down the line in <laughs> Portugal at the moment. I'm in our living room, the, the rooms that you were fed in and grew up in. I hope you're well, girls. Uh, wow. Hi, Jeff. I mean, that, that's bold. It's ambitious to think that they're going to be listening to Season 13, Episode 29, <laughs> um, if they've started at the start, if they're completists. But maybe they're working backwards and maybe maybe this has all come to a hasty end shortly after this episode. Who knows? Um, but, but, look, if they have got this far going from the start, then they're really interested in what you used to do for work. We've got quite a bit to get through today. We promised a women's Premier League uh, conversation in a bit more depth, and I've had that with Anesha Ghosh, uh, our colleague, our freelance colleague who I've worked a bit with over the years. That's in the, the third segment. We have got a uh, discussion around the, the Sheffield Shield final coming up, Jeff, the the end of the, the men's domestic season there. Bit on pitch stuff, because there always is a lot on ICC stuff. Um, we'll have some nerd pledge in the middle of the show. Before we get right into it, though, uh, I just wanted to just acknowledge that we've had even more people sign up for this half marathon, Jeff. I don't want to go into enormous amounts of depth at the start of the show on this, but we've got to 17 runners across five different marathons and half wow. marathons, all raising money for the Lord's Tabs from Berlin to Nashville to Edinburgh to Manchester and London. I think 13 of those 17 are in Edinburgh with me on the 28th of May. So exactly two months from now. Mm. So we've got a WhatsApp group going. All of us are in there at the moment. We've set an ambitious target of £5,000 collectively, which is a little bit more than the Lord's Tabs have asked for. So that's a, a nice thing. We're, we're not going to we're not going to hound you for money, but if you want to contribute, it's in the show notes where the link is and, and we'll be doing a fair bit of social media around that over the next couple of months. 17 times 21, that's at least 357 kilometres that your people will be running with a bit more because some of them are doing the full marathon as well. So they're probably going to crack the 400 collectively. That's, I mean, that's wow. too far to run really. But that's big. Uh, you're going to do it. Yeah, I tried to go for a run yesterday and just got swamped with work, but hopefully I'll get a chance later today. In fact, I, I won't get a chance after 2pm because that's the, the last part of my root canal, part six. It might oh. be seven parts, but uh, I'm in there again how today. Have you I, had this, how is this, this is like the worst root canal in history. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I remember having one, but it was I'm pretty sure it was done in two or three goes. Like, How have you managed to turn this into like a, a, a Fast and the Furious franchise of mm. root canals? <laughs> Well, A, because it's me. B, uh, nothing's ever easy. Uh, no, m more, more to the point, well, it's, it's how it happened because of the car accident, which was a year ago this week. I know that because I saw a little social media clip about Buddy Franklin's 1,000th goal and I know that, oh. that is, is the, uh, the afternoon of what happens <laughs> later that night. It's funny what you triggered by. It was actually quite... Um, that that, that is such a you way of remembering. This is how I, I remember know. my key life moments. Yeah, I know, right. This is how I nearly ended up dying in a, in a car accident in Lahore. Well, I say that, like, I mean, had I not been wearing my seatbelt, I, I would have met my maker. Yeah, to think that was um, a year ago. And uh, yeah, the buddy, for some reason, that actually, um, I was quite shaken up by that watching the buddy goal. Maybe mm. more, but it makes sense as to why, because of what happened that night in, in Pakistan. And yeah, the root canal, why it's so bad is the tooth was so damaged because the filling came out in the accident. Huh. And I didn't realise for a number of months, and thus the tooth got so... Um, messed up inside that the canals are just 
got all sorts of problems. The three different canals have got separate problems and it right. requires visits to the specialist and, and the specialist will um, will have his way with my tooth <laughs> later this afternoon. Mm. Hopefully he can bust it open so I can complete my secret plan to fight inflation as, um, as John O'Halen would like me to say, uh, fellow West Wing nut. In fact, John O'Halen had a good night Saturday night. You can probably tell by the, the surname there that uh, he's going to have a, a senior minister in the family. Well, when the new New South Wales ministry is sworn in. And yeah, the other thing that went through my head repeatedly around the, the anniversary of the Aside accident from was, a filling that was flying around the place. Exactly, aside from that is that bloody hell, I was pissed off in India this year about the seatbelt situation. I would have said on the pod when I told the story of what had happened, I'm never getting in a car again without a seatbelt. And I really meant that. Like I was quite committed to not subjecting myself to that degree of risk, even if in the subcontinent you're only going at sort of 20 or 30 kilometres an hour most of the time. But in India, it's just impossible because 19 out of 20 cars don't have seatbelts in the back. Would that be fair in terms of the Ubers and the well, certainly the public the cars, cars that we had access yeah. to, the Ubers yeah. and the Olas and the cabs. and you know cabs, and even when you get in the front seat and, and gesture to put your seatbelt on, a lot of the time the driver's like, it's a sign of disrespect that you want to put the belt on mm. to start with. It just strikes me as odd that in 2023 there can be such a a reluctance to, and it's not just in India, of course, but we were just there, so it stands out to me that in that country there is such a reluctance to have such a basic part of. Uh, of vehicle safety implemented with seatbelts given they you know we've got the road safety league that's a big part of the cricket calendar now over there and all about saving lives on the road well here's one easy way to help with that let people buckle up well that was a big part of why it exists i was asking Sunil gavaskar about this and he was saying you know because the road toll is so awful you know they've got to start somewhere and so the idea is well if you can use cricket if you can use the profile of that to try to get people thinking about it, you know, it, it's a it's an immense toll, the number of motorbikes driving around and so on. But yeah, that that is one, and and I'm not sure if it's different in certain parts of the country. Or you know, it certainly was different from person to person. But a lot of the drivers seem to think that it was um, it would be annoying for you to have a seatbelt in the way in the back seat. So we very helpfully uh, tied it up or chopped it off or buried it under the seat and made it literally impossible. It's not that not like you can have a choice as to whether to wear it or not you cannot mm. it, it, it is not available so yeah it's a strange thing for for us to get our heads around from our perspective you know having grown up with a, a very different view of it but I suppose if you go back even a decade before you and I were born there was still very much that sort of culture in Australia as well that oh why would you bother oh why would you you know and like you say if you put your seatbelt on it means you don't trust the driver which is nonsense of course because I don't know when one of my father's pearls of wisdom when he taught me to drive was always assume that everybody else is a fucking idiot he may not have phrased it in exactly that way but <laughs> he always assume that the other person is going to make a mistake that's how you drive and so it's it's not about you it's about who's going to plow into you yeah, and, and that road toll point, was it, I haven't got it in my head, but certainly learnt it as a kid in 19, was it 1970? Was it the war on 1174 or something like that? The road mm. toll in, in, in Victoria that year. And it's like, it's a third or a quarter of that these days. And yes, that's a, uh, an improvement in the safety of cars more generally and how robust they are, modern vehicles. But a big part of it then was just getting people to wear seatbelts. So mm-hmm. anyway, it feels like low-hanging fruit to me. And I was reminded of it on the weekend. One place we were in India last month, Jeff, was indoor. In fact, we were there earlier this month at the start of March to oh, think yeah. we were only there a few weeks ago. I loved indoor, but I, I didn't love the pitch, nor did Chris Broad. But the BCCI were quite fond of it, funny that. And they put in an appeal with the ICC and 
Deidre Chambers, what a coincidence, the ICC saw fit to change the sanction mm-hmm. from three points to one. So it had its... It was seen as poor. It was uh, adjudicated as poor by Chris Broad, the second lowest rating immediately after the test match. The lowest ranking gets you five demerit points and then you're automatically banned from hosting for the next 12 months. If you get five points cumulatively across a five-year stretch, you also receive that sanction. But according to the statement, having reviewed the footage of the test match, the ICC appeal panel deemed that there was not enough excessive variable bounce to warrant the poor rating. Uh, Tom Miles uh, wrote to me immediately from on our Discord channel saying that Alex Carey's helmet might have a different view on that point around variable bounce, given uh, he was wearing them all over the place. But but yes, that struck me at once as... um, Perfectly expected after mm-hmm. they put in the appeal that the BCCI would get that ruling and equally completely ridiculous given what we saw across those seven sessions. Perfectly cromulent, if you will. I, yes, I mean, yes. I wonder, to me the curious thing is what's the point of doing it? It's not as though Indoor is going to host more than another test match in the next five years anyway. They don't host tests very often there and this one was only an emergency relocation. So it, it, it's not as though the actual rating would have made much difference anyway. So it was more a... a a prestige kind of thing, but it's a it's an undermining of your match referee as well. You know why would yes. you? Why would you? It's a it's a bit of a Mark Dines situation. If if your match ref is making a judgment, and then a couple of weeks later, somebody watching the tape back, who's not actually at the game um, and going out to look at the pitch every day, as I'm sure the match referee was says, oh, no, it looked all right to me on the telly. Yep, let's let's change your number. Then why would you want to put your name to a number, to a rating as a match referee in future uh, when you would have to be taking into account how powerful the relevant board is and whether they will inevitably appeal? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, and just to be really clear, I know we'll get comments on, on YouTube that's, that say that Pakistan did the same thing in December. They did. I mean, they that did. was the Royal Pindi pitch match. Um, Which was also atrocious. I mean, in the other but, way. But not the one not, but not the one in question. So the Royal Pindi... Well, it depends yeah, on your interpretation, but the England one, yeah. So the Australia hmm. one got away with, I think, below average and, and the uh, as was the one with England in December. What was interesting there was that the Test match still had 39 wickets across five days. <laughs> so the lived experience, it shouldn't hmm. all be about how many wickets fall, but there was a a review on, on that basis that the pitch did deteriorate enough that a result was possible. By contrast, the, the pitch yeah. that we saw at Royal Pindy earlier but, last year, they could have been playing on day 15 and it wouldn't have made a difference. But I think anybody who you know actually follows cricket could see that had a team played in the way that Australia played on that England pitch, they would have had the same result as the Australia match. You know, the, True. There was, that pitch wasn't going anywhere except that England kamikaze their way to 650 in about three hours. And, <laughs> and Pakistan blinked because they weren't expecting to be put under pressure on that surface. So, yes, it was possible to get a result on that surface, but only if you were as madcap as England currently are, it was very much an anomaly that they got a result. So, I I mean, I thought watching that game that the surface was, looked like maybe it broke up a tiny bit more, but not a lot. It looked about as flat. And and the point is that when you know that that Royal Pindy pitch, when treated normally, has grass on it and has assistance for seamers and it is very deliberately neutered, then, yes, you do deserve a bad rating for that, um, regardless mm, of what mm. the result is. Yeah, there, there's a... There's a there's an element of like yeah. cricket IQ required when, when sure. making these decisions. And you, as, you as, know, with the, as with the Gabba one, which people like to say to us, what about Brisbane? Yes, we talked about Brisbane a lot when it happened, after it happened, um, and we have talked about it many times since. That pitch is 
that Brisbane pitch is clearly an anomaly in terms of Brisbane pitches. We've been to a lot of test matches in Brisbane. That's the only one that's ever been anywhere near playing like that. And you're not going to get another one like that in a year's time. And Brisbane received a below average rating. Maybe they should have reviewed that. <laughs> with um, should have set it. that upstairs and, and, and see as a big three member whether would have, would have had the um, uh, the the extra support. Who's to know? Right. But yeah, well, Pakistan and India both um, getting uh, improvements on their ratings subsequently. That was a laugh. And just on on indoor, by the way, I, I saw a tweet from the president of the local association, like who was who was um, mortified at the original rating, and he says here we commit ourselves to be one of the best cricketing venues in India, and we're grateful to all of those who have helped us through this crisis like i hope indoor crisis? gets to host more what well, crisis because one more bad rating in their stuff for five years right well sorry stuff for 12 months and i just wanted to, to add that indoor was a great venue in every possible way other than the 22 yards in the middle and you and i and everybody else knows that the local curators only have so much control over that that that, that yep. is a as we know when there's test matches being played in india there is the central curator from the bcci who wears mm. the team kit and all the rest of it that has a massive hand well, in two of them there's a there's a traveling pitch committee that they're called who are bcci employed who go around to to decide with team management and most of that input's coming from the coach as well so you know we certainly saw Raul Dravid taking a strong interest in in the pitches in the middle I tend to take the Nathan Lyon approach that you know I didn't mind that surface because it was interesting it made for an interesting test match and it brought bowlers into the game and on balance I'd rather see bowlers dominate than batting dominate yeah it was titillating that's for sure I loved it you know the experience of those seven sessions but there is a a criteria for a reason and yeah this seemed odd more on the ICC this week as well so the disputed claims of Afghanistan's funding increase this is complicated terrain it always is when it comes to Afghanistan Jeff we expected that there'd be pressure on the full members sitting around that table around full member status for Afghanistan when they met last week as an ICC board around the fact that they don't have a women's team or certainly haven't mm-hmm. They've ceased developing that women's team since the Taliban kicked in. As we learnt in your interview a couple of months ago, Jeff, they're effectively in exile in Melbourne. They've set up a working group between times. We haven't heard much from them. That seemingly was it other than the ICC Mm. reiterating their support to all of their full member nations. But also that over the last few months, every time somebody has asked a question about this the response has been well there will be a board meeting in march and we will yes. discuss the issue then and come to a position and what they've done is discuss the issue and not come to a position yeah and and there was no communication out of it no there was you know ordinarily you get some sort of um you know media notes that, that come out of an icc board meeting and the suggestion was that nothing seriously had been discussed there that was you know newsworthy yeah, or whatever or nothing else. Had but, changed. but it turned yeah nothing had changed and look maybe from a funding perspective that is the case so this is, yeah, again, this is complicated because the ACB, which isn't the Australian Cricket Board, it's the Afghanistan Cricket Board, the, the, the former um, mm. acronym of, of Australian Cricket from a couple of decades ago. Their chair and CEO came out and said it was a good meeting for Afghanistan. In addition to other achievements, we sought an increase to our annual budget and thankfully it was granted. And after the review, we will receive a significantly greater budget compared to today. So they're out there saying they've had a blinder. They've had mm. their budget increased. The ICC, in response, and those around the, the game that we have that we talked to, uh, saying that's not actually what happened. That there was no additional funding. Yeah, and there's no plans for additional funding. That this statement doesn't marry up with what actually happened. So this is where it, this is murky stuff because it, it would seem unusual for a full member to go out there and issue a media release, only to find out through back channels after the fact that 
that's according to them not accurate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the curiosity. There's been no official ICC statement on it yet. Maybe there will be at some point to clarify. But if you're if you're the ACB and you know that there won't be any contradicting your statements, then you can go out and make whatever statements you want um, <laughs> in order to look good to your constituents. But this is this was the interesting part. So initially, we saw it reported as the Afghan board has received this increase in funding. What we're led to believe is that this isn't true, is that there's been literally no additional funding, there's been no extra, you know, they mentioned having extra technical help to develop their technical capabilities and so on. That is also apparently not the case. So who's right and who's wrong, I'm not exactly sure, but it seems more likely than not that there isn't actually a funding increase and that this yeah. is more a PR exercise by the ACB. And just zooming out, like we've you know, obviously had a lot of conversations about Afghanistan in the last, what are we now, 20 months, something like that, since mm. the uh, since the Taliban took over in 2021. And, and uh, we've explained the position that if cricket pulls out of Afghanistan entirely, uh, if cricket abandons the Afghanistan side, well, the Taliban will, will fill the gap and then the game and the players and administrators and everybody's stuff. Like we, we understand that perspective, but that's not where the conversation's at at the moment. It's more about they're flouting the ICC's regulations as a full member by not having a women's yep. team and thus how can they kind of get away with that? Like even the bit about, you know, the ICC continuing to have full regard and support of the Afghanistan board, like we didn't really know at the working group what would happen there. It, it was unlikely, but it was within the realms of possibility, the working group, which includes, mm. I think it's the chair of Cricket Island, um, a couple of other representatives who've been involved in ICC committees before, remembering that the ICC is a federation, it's not just... You know, I always stress this point. It's not technocrats in Dubai. It's a member-based organisation. It's a member-based um, organisation, but it's also a majority-led organisation. Yes. And so when there's a block of countries who are going to vote to support Afghanistan continuing to play, no matter what is brought to the table, then it doesn't actually matter what protests other countries might bring. You've got your full member nations and they've all got a right. certain amount of voting power. What really stands out is that the ICC uh, has suspended plenty of countries before it's kicked out countries we talked about morocco a few weeks ago with the you know the fact that they were hosting uh full member countries in odi tri-series only 20 years ago we've talked about the usa being kicked out for financial irregularities a couple of times zimbabwe had their full member zimbabwe. status um, suspended for years on the basis of financial irregularities and and the fact that there was government interference in zimbabwean cricket how this doesn't qualify when so literally they're saying if you have financial irregularities that is more important than if you are <laughs> denying the human rights of more than half of your population it's 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 an extraordinary moral failing that this is not being treated with that same kind of seriousness or with more seriousness because it is more serious and the absolute self-justifying bullshit that essentially the line out of the ICC and, and, and no one's willing to put their names to things either is that, oh, well, if we, if we don't do this, then, uh, then, then things could get worse and maybe we can have an influence, we'll have more influence this way than the other way. Like we've said on the show before, the Taliban doesn't give a fuck about your influence. They're not going to listen to anybody from outside 
that is not their MO, it never has been, and it never will be. It's, it, they're fundamentalists for a reason. So it's this absolute fanciful idea that there will be some influence that can be brought to bear. There won't be. The only real reason that the ICC doesn't want to do anything or enough of the members of the ICC don't want to do anything is that there's a financial imperative not to because Afghanistan is now succeeding as a country on the field and, and they're a, a part of bringing money into World Cups and the rest. Yeah, the clue in, in fundamentalists is in the name, isn't it? Like they are not mm. the types who are inclined to compromise. And I think this is where like it was tough early days to talk about this because you know, you're know you aware of what some of the players are saying. Even the conversation that you had a couple of months ago, Jeff, wasn't, wasn't along the lines of, well, let's strip the men of, of status. But equally, and not equally, more than equally, what you said there about all the countries that have had to forfeit their status before. The best example, South Africa. I mean, they were they were put into the international sporting wilderness for two decades on account of what was going on, on through the apartheid regime. That was a collective effort. And that wasn't just cricket, of course. That was far mm. more... It, well, it wasn't just sporting either. It was diplomatic. It was trade. It was the works. But nevertheless, there was a decision taken that cricket would not be involved in South Africa. And... I sense maybe the ICC at some level are a little bit sort of embarrassed about this. Like people who work there know that this is egregious and understand the real politic, what you're saying there yep. about it being an events business, right? The ICC, I think Gideon Haig uses this line that the, the, the ICC these days is an organisation that puts on World Cups and makes a lot of money for their members by virtue of the fact that once a year or a couple of times a year, if you include women's cricket as well, which we should for this because they're big events in their own right, they get to fatten the cow and, and the benefits of that are spread out across the full members especially and the developing nations too. The, the World Cups are of benefit to associate nations. But mm. um, at what point point do they view this through the South African prism of it being unconscionable to continue playing there at what point do they get resourceful about that women's team so yes you know we have seen examples in the past of countries or players or athletes who've been in the wilderness themselves as individuals well at the Olympic Games they've competed under the Olympic flag many Olympics I mean going back to 1992 I remember when there was the, the war in the former Yugoslavia that the unified nation or the unified athlete team that, that competed in that there have been many examples of that could there be a creative solution found for these Afghanistan women mm-hmm. where they don't play for the, 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 the board per se but they can still play cricket in a way that recognises that they are the Afghanistan women's team currently yep. mostly based in Australia and the kind of line that we're hearing out of the ICC originating from the board's deliberations is that oh we we can't as the ICC we can't uh, help get a team together because it has to be done under the auspices of the national board so the rules say that we can't do that the rules also say that you can't be a full member unless you have a women's team so there's this absolute bullshit that they're willing to say oh well our hands are tied because these are the regulations but also we're not willing to enforce the fact that other that members have to adhere to the regulations. So it's one or the other. Either the regulations are easily bendable or they're not. You can decide what kind of organisation you want to be, but it's completely inconsistent the way that they're talking about it, that that they don't have control because they have to respect the autonomy of a national board That is, but a national board that's not fulfilling its basic obligations. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing on this. That um, There have been two chairs have rolled over out of the big three in the last six months. Richard Thompson's running the show at the ECB as the new chair. I think he took over in September last year. And Mike Baird took over the board at CA. I think he formally started in February, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, two good men. And by that, I mean you can have our political conversations around Mike Baird. We've done that before. But people who are of substance, who have been involved in big organisations, in positions of authority – 
in complicated situations in their professional lives before they became the chairs of their respective bodies, right? I have hope that they'd be the two kind of personalities who could show some influence here, who could do as you're describing and, and lead the organisation in a way that would uh, feel more in keeping with the regulations, especially as it relates to the women's team. That Not just let this drift from board meeting to board meeting, working group here, statement there, World Cup here, and not leave it up to, like CA, remember, are the only organisation so far, I believe, to refuse to play Afghanistan in a bilateral series. But as we said at the time, the real test is will CA pull the Australian men's team out when they're scheduled to play Afghanistan in the World Cup in India in October or November this year. That'll be the real test on the field. But off the field, around the board table, what will Mike Baird and Richard Thompson do to ensure that there is more clarity around the situation and that the ICC are better held to account when it relates to their own existing framework and, and regulations? Well, I, I, I think that if you're looking to Mike Baird to provide leadership when there's large amounts of money involved, then you're dreaming. But also that it, it, their influence is... I don't think it's going to have enough influence at that level. We often talk about the ICC and the fact that it's a member organisation. So as it is, you'll, you've got this sort of... The, the political blocks, the way that they'll work out is that you'll have... Even if you have England and Australia saying that something should be done about this, you're more likely to have a pulling together of an Asian bloc of countries saying we don't want to be pushed around by these by the, the Anglophone side of cricket. Like why, mm, sh why mm. should we... Why should we have to accept your values? We have different values. We're going to support this country because they're they're in our block over here. You know, they're in the Asia Cup. They're a, a, a credible opponent now. And that's just exacerbated by what's happened during the week. They beat Pakistan in a T20 international series, won the first two games 2-0 and lost the third. So, you know, that's their first win in a series of any kind over Pakistan. It, it, it's in terms of series wins over top-level countries. Uh, Afghanistan have beat West Indies in a T20 series once and, and that's it. That's their only win over kind of the big countries. They've beaten Zimbabwe and Bangladesh before in series. Um, but in terms of taking down the bigger opponents, this is the next step. They've never beaten Pakistan. There's that huge rivalry with Pakistan as the nearest neighbour and all the, the rest of it. So there's that increasing credibility as an on-field opponent and that makes it less and less attractive financially um, or culturally, I suppose, for that particular political block in the ICC to sideline one of those members. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure I'm understood here, Jeff. I don't know if you if I articulated myself adequately before. The point I'm making is that with Baird and Thompson, you got sort of they're grown ups. Like they've been they've seen a lot of things, right? And part of that requires winning the room. Both of those guys in their day jobs, so to speak, mm. would have had to have won the room and won the argument time and time again. And I have faith that if they wish to try and win the argument with the the block that you're referring to there in terms of the votes, they've got a better chance of doing it perhaps than their predecessors right. who I would have had less faith in winning the room and less faith in walking in and showing a bit of stature or a bit of substance. My gut is that if there's going to be any change at that top, top table, and that's where the effectively the chairs and their, and their alternates sit at the board meeting, this might be the bit where we get something there. I'm not saying it will, but like I, I have hope. Yeah, but as you say, the World Cup is the test of everybody yep. in this regard and it's getting closer every day.
Jeff, before we uh, move off the ICC, this is this is I feel so it's just like the worst sort of like kind of handbrake segue here. The ratings came out, or the rankings came out for the players this week. I love the fact that well, first of all, Kane Williamson's back to number one Test batter. That's a pretty good mm-hmm. effort uh, when you consider where he was and how he's evolved. And we've spoken about him in, in the last couple of weeks, so well played to him. Josh Hazelwood is back as the number one one day bowler. Has, has he, when did he last he play one day today? <laughs> <laughs> he might have played one against England or two against England in uh, in October, but um, I, I just can't quite put my finger on. Which isn't to say that when he he's been bloody good when he has played for Australia, but uh, yeah, it feels like Hazelwood's the the sort of lost Australian quick of, of recent times, and yet he is the number one one day bowler in the world. And there'll be well, we're coming up to contract time, aren't we? The contracts come out in mid April. April, I reckon. Mm-hmm. So we'll Usually. get a bit of a sense of the depth chart there as to where Hazelwood fits. And I mean, there were some reports during the week around where Usman Khawaja might be on that list this year. Uh, you'd imagine he'll be right towards the top. And what a lovely thing that Khawaja at age 36 will probably get his biggest ever CA contract when he wasn't even on the books, well, 13 months ago. He should probably be going to the World Cup. Really, I mean, if you if you want someone in those conditions, uh, I mean, I suppose there's a long queue for the top of the order now. Given that Mitch Marsh did so well there as as sort of the the first backup, if you will, but he'll probably be batting at three. But yeah, you could have done worse than than going back to Kawaja at the top of the order. Given I remember the way he played in that 2016 that T20 World Cup on those Indian surfaces, mm. he was superb. So, you know, I mean, his, his, his time is done, maybe, but we thought that before in other formats, so who knows. Jeff, time for a bit of... Mm, nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Let's play a little game in Nerd Pledge, the game we play. With people who listen to this show, here's how it works. Some people fund our program by sending in contributions, and those contributions, instead of being the state-sanctioned denominations that they try to bind us with and suppress our creativity... They are instead different numbers and the number relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what the number means. Our Nerd Pledger this week, a new entrant is Matthew Blacker. The pledge is £2.44. That means the number is 244 and we can interpret that in any way we like. Uh, I'm very pleased to see Matt Blacker in for his first pledge. We were talking about the Lord's Tabs marathons and the runs we're doing at the start. Matt is doing two runs for the Tabs, bless him. He's doing the London Marathon on the 23rd of April. And he's not only running the half marathon at Edinburgh, he's going the whole way around, all 42 kilometres. So he's running 84 kilometres for the Tabs over the next couple of months. Looking forward to meeting him. He has a clue for you, Jeff. Um, A couple of years ago, my friend Josh told me about this podcast where they talk about cricket and numbers. It's right up your alley, you nerd. This is his mate saying to him. It fast became... And has remained my favourite podcast. And I'm excited to finally get around to jumping on the Patreon. I'm a big believer of being here for a long time, not a good time. And my pledge reflects one such effort, which is stuck in my brain since it happened despite being in vain. I'm an Aussie studying in England, and the number has nothing to do with either of those countries. P.S. Somewhere around story time 60, you gave a shout out to listeners who might be on a walk in the middle of nowhere. I heard this as I set out from Edinburgh on a six-day hike around Scotland and your stories accompanied me throughout that trip and many adventures since. Thank you, Matt. That's very nice. Okay, 2.44. Long time, not a good time. 
an effort in vain. And so this seemed to me, I thought, well, this must be a very straightforward solution to this one. This, it has to be an innings, surely. It has to be somebody making 244, taking a long time to do it and losing the match, right? I mean, that seems logical, yes? I, I think, though, that, that, I mean, that's how I would interpret it. So I, I right. think your starting point's fine. So, um, you know, I looked into it. There's nothing in Test cricket because the only 244s are Bradman and Cook, both being Australia and England players. So it involves neither of those countries. The only other one is Frank Dimuth Karunaratna, uh, big Frankie Runes, who made it in 2021. But that was in a draw, so not quite in vain um, against Bangladesh. And maybe it was a bit recent. Uh, I, I kind of doubt that's what we're looking at. It's not really in vain, right? To be in vain, I need somebody to have lost the match. So I went into first-class cricket annals. And there are many, many 244s, Adam. There are dozens of them. And a lot of final word favourites and non-favourites in the 244 list. Uh, big Dodger Weisel, the fellow who died on the dance floor, he made a 244. CB Fry, Vijay Hazare, Plum Warner, celebrity racist Archie McLaren. So a couple of shitlisters and a couple of faves in there as well. I think we should officially add Plum Warner to the shit list as well. This suggestion was made a few weeks ago, but I've, I've, I've come around to it. I think, I think pop Plum on. If it's not for body line, it's for the... Remember when everyone was saying, oh, David Warner had the worst five test series that anyone's mm. ever had during the Ashes? He didn't. Plum Warner had a worse one. He just played one of his innings at number six because he dropped himself down the order when he realised he couldn't bat. But he made... 70 runs or something like that in his 10 innings in South Africa in the early 1900s off the top of my head. So the thing is that none of these 244s came in lost games, not one. No one has ever made 244 in a first-class match and lost it. There have been some draws, but there have been a lot of innings wins. It's been a successful number. People have made double hundreds and lost, but no one's made 244 and lost, which meant that I was like, okay, well, my original assumption about this number must be wrong. However, there are things that I found on the way that are too good not to share. So I'm definitely not going to solve this, but I am going to tell you something interesting, which is this. Arthur Fagg is a player that we've mentioned before, very good opening bat for the most part for Kent before and after World War II had a lot of health problems. Um, he had rheumatic fever, which is one of those things you tend to hear about in the era of you know, tuberculosis and scarlet fever and whatnot. Rheumatic fever means that your joints swell up and it, it can come on sporadically, it can return, and, and it means that it's sore and stiff to move around and that sort of thing. So that limited his career to five test matches, but he did still play a lot of county cricket. And in 1938 at Colchester, Adam, he walks out against Essex, opening the batting. He makes 244 out of a score of 429, by the way, so 57% of the runs. Good going. They get a lead of 79 on the first innings. They decide to bat again in the third, and he peels off 202 not out in the third innings. The only time, and for a very, very long time, it was the only time that anybody in a first-class match had made twin double centuries. Lots of twin tons no twin doubles until something we talked about on the show when it happened I think it was 2021 when a Sri Lankan player named Angelo Pereira did this for the nondescripts 11 against the Sinhalese sports club he made twin doubles they're still the only two in all first class cricket to this day Arthur Fagg and Angelo Pereira and a last little bit that you will particularly enjoy on 244 Adam it is this 
player named Muhammad Abdullah, who played first-class cricket in the 1920s and 30s in uh, India and what later became Pakistan. Now, you will remember from the Dera Ishmael Khan story, uh, Pervez Akhtar, the player who made 337 and across the rest of his career did not continue in that sort of vein. He, Ma- he averaged 16 for the rest of his career. There we go. Muhammad Abdullah played a, a handful of first-class matches among some others. So he played seven first-class games. He played one against the MCC in 1926, esteemed company. He played some against the Maharaja, was he, of Vizianagram, the, uh, the the fellow named, known as Vizi, who toured with that Indian team in the 30s. He played for Karachi. He played for Sindh. He played all over the joint across his seven games. And for Karachi, against Hyderabad, he makes 244 not out, out of a total of 599. Now, Hyderabad get away with a draw. They're six wickets down in the last innings and they manage to hang on. So the centrepiece of this game is 244 not out for Muhammad Abdullah, who in the rest of his career made scores of 3, 35, 12, 7, 4, 3, 2, 2, 4, 0, 2 and 17. The rest of his career was 91 runs in 12 innings at an average of seven. Wasn't that the number of runs that Dave Warner made in the 20... Didn't he make 91 95. runs in that? 95, okay. That would have been a nice way to yeah. have tied it off there for Matt. But. That would have. That would have. So so he averaged seven when he didn't make a double hundred <laughs> <laughs> and didn't have an average when he did because he was 244 not out with an ex-best of 35 across his career, Muhammad Abdullah. None of those will be your answer, Matt. But they are some answers and they have things that you probably didn't know and now you do. And the beauty of it is, Matt, you can send through your revisit clue and we'll, we'll deal with it in the usual way. Thank you to everybody who enjoyed Storytime 128, was it, last week, which was it wasn't our longest episode ever, but it must have come pretty bloody close. It's only the third time I think we've breached the two-hour mark and we did 18 numbers through the course of... Uh, that two hours and we'll have a few more this week I suspect and we'll be slightly more organised about the way we do the revisits but it was totally worth it because the stories were great so thanks Matt Blacker for your 244 great to have you part of our crew if you join patreon.com forward slash the final word you also get access to our discord channel which is a lovely place the nicest place on all of the world wide web Jeff we're going to take a break on the other side of it the Shield final and later we're talking about the Women's Premier League Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, WA, the Juggernaut. They go back to back in the shield. They've the Wagonaut. Three-peat again, I think. They've done that twice in a row. They've done it, is it three times in the last five years, something like that. They beat the Vicks, who did, as we explained last week, very well to make the final, Victoria having beaten WA uh, in the final group game or the final regulation game. So it was a, a, a replay, if you like, of the week before at the Wacker Ground in Perth. But Victoria outmatched against WA, who were able to add a couple of players to their 11, and they were by far the best team through the comp. So it was an mm-hmm. appropriate result. But Victoria, as I say, with a young side getting there the way they did, I think both Victoria and WA take a lot from season 22-23. Well, look, if, if, you're, if you're Victoria, then you've done well to beat Western Australia in Perth to make the final and doing it twice in a row is not likely to happen. If you're Western Australia, I mean, goodness me, this is, these guys over the last, I mean, we're looking at 10 years plus now, like the, the, 
the dynastic dominance in the Big Bash. They've won a stack of 50 over titles and then going back to back again in the Shield. They did that once in the 90s, but doing it again here and never looked like anything but winners really all season. They were they were the latter leaders throughout and they know how to use their home conditions. That's the advantage you get when you're that dominant through the season is to host the final and winning it outright in what ended up being an exciting game as well where they weren't on top the whole way through. They were really under the cosh during their first batting innings. Uh, they needed a rescue. They got a rescue. Ashton Turner coming to the party there. And so I think there's there's a, a huge amount to enjoy for, for Perth or uh, Tidal Town, as Clint Wielden was insisting on calling it. it. It probably served them well bowling first, I reckon, just putting the younger Victorian team under the hammer early on with such a class, well-rounded pace attack at the Wacker. But, um, yeah, Victoria all out 195. Chandra Singer has this. That's Chandra Singer who made his debut at the start of the year. Made 46 not out to carry his bat from 280 deliveries. Mm. I wonder whether that might be, there might be a record there somewhere. Like, is it the lowest score to carry a bat out of a total that big, maybe possibly. Either way, it, it was a. Mm. It's noteworthy that he that he can play those incredibly long innings and not get out, even if the scoreboard doesn't tick over quickly when he's when he's out in the middle. It's definitely not the lowest bat carrying score because we've looked at that on story time before, and I'm sure there are some that come in lower than that. Where oh no no no, I don't, I don't mean I don't mean lowest bat. They've definitely had them. I wonder relative to yes. the total. I was about to, to clarify. Relative to the total, maybe, like as a bat carried as a percentage of runs, is that something we – I think we have – I think I think some of our listeners have looked at that as the the reverse Bannerman, if you will. What's the, <laughs> what's the lowest contribution while not getting out in percentage terms? There's probably an Alec Bannerman innings somewhere that, that satisfies that criteria. Yeah, you're probably right. But yeah, where, where the score is a minimum of 195, I wonder where that fits. Because mm. it'll be easier to do when it's all out 80 or something like that to end up being like 10 not out or, or something like that. Anyway, that that's one for the Discord channel. And it was the WA squeeze with the ball all season, wasn't it? I mean, in this instance, it was two for for Paris, two for for Kelly, three for Morris, two for Hardy, and one for the spinner, Roger Cioli, who's been pretty consistent uh, throughout. He ended up in the top 10 wicket takers list. WA 315, but you're right, they were, you know, 50 odd for four when Sutherland gets cart right for a duck. In walks Ashton Turner at number six, makes 128, put on a century stand with Joel Paris, who only made 31, but batted for more than a session. He batted with Aaron Hardy, who made 45 earlier in his innings. And yeah, Ashton Turner, uh, you know, he's, I think he's 32. Um, uh, he's surely uh, going to be playing for Australia again in the shorter form. Mm. We, we've talked about that after the World Cup and all the success he's enjoyed leading the Perth Scorchers. But he doesn't captain the Shield team. But Century in a Shield final. I know he hasn't got a huge first-class record taken as a whole, but someone who's been a leader around the state setup, who's played a lot of cricket, who's got a three in front of his age, you couldn't rule out. And, and having done it you know, in the game, they always pay more attention to, right? They, mm-hmm. Selectors over many generations have, have had extra waiting for the Shield final. They consider it as close as there is to a Test match. I wonder whether... Yeah. He might snag him, you know, he might end up with the 17th place on the plane for England or something like that. And, you know, a great partnership for nicknames as well. Raging Turner batting with Midnight in Joel Paris. Midnight in. I mean, Raging and Midnight (laughs) in together in the middle. Absolutely (laughs) perfect. Look, I I think it's a bridge too far to, to. Put him in a test squad. If he, I, w- I would look at it this way: if he didn't play any further one-day cricket or not much after that incredible, the miracle at Mahali, 
then he's not going to be getting into a test squad on the basis of one innings here. You, I mean, you, he, he you're almost, you're almost certainly right. Yeah, you, you're definitely right. It's not going to happen. I guess what I'm, I'm doing is I'm, I'm just building a case for guys who have found themselves out of the selectors' minds who mm. at the best next level um, mm-hmm. are still making contributions. It, it Look, in reality for him, it'll be as a white ball Australian cricketer, but, you know, a reminder there. Also the second Shield final in a row where Will Sutherland's taken a Fifer in a losing team. So Fifer yeah. 75, he bowled 28 overs. He's off to Essex. This season, Jeff, I think for the full season as well. Really? Uh, that was announced after we recorded last week. So the new like, Derek Pringle. Well, maybe, but a bit quicker perhaps. Um, but yeah, with with Will, he goes on to make 83 from 84 balls, batting at number eight in the second innings. Um, he ended up leading the shield for wickets this season. He took 41 wickets at 20. That takes some doing. He's only 23. Mm. And I, I know that Cameron Green, for all the right reasons, is the incumbent all-rounder, but might there be room for both of them? Is there a scenario where Sutherland and Green could both be floating around playing for Australia? Should it, you know, might it be like when you've got two great spinners coming through at the same time? You don't deny yourself the chance to pick both of them occasionally. Could it be the same for Green and Sutherland, I wonder? Well, if you're taking 40 at 20, then you can make a case for getting in the test team as a number eight, you know, rather than having to try to get in as as an all-rounder on the basis of runs first and, and then the runs can be a bonus. So there is that possibility as well, whether, you know, he's pace-wise he's not quite a genuine quick, but you don't have to be. You know, Darren Lehman's not the coach anymore. You don't have to bowl 145 k's an hour to get a cap. And he's hostile as well. Like he may not be as quick as, um, you know, the big three or whatever, but he's in your face. He's a, remember he's a footballer after all, right? He was going to go, as they say, he was going to go uh, top 10 draft pick, but pick cricket and he's big guy and, and so on. So I wonder, yeah, watching him go around in England might be a, a sign as to what could be possible for him into the future. Boland, meanwhile, 30 overs, 17 maidens, two for 40, just every week. Same set and forget, mm-hmm. Scotty be good. So uh, even though they were behind, they had a 120 run first innings deficit. They were probably vaguely in the game because they bowled pretty well even after the, the Ashton Turner century. Victoria only make 210 in their second innings, though, so they were out for 195 and 210. They were 6 for 74 when Pete Hanscom got out for 52. So Hanscom, you know, at one point it was 5 for 74 with Hanscom, 52 of those coming in at number four, the captain, until Lance Morris picked him up, returning to the side, having um, been in that test squad in India. We already mentioned about Sutherland's uh, counter-attacking contribution at number eight, had Murphy for support to get them to that vaguely credible 210 from from where they were but it was the it was the WA bowlers let's not, let's not detract from them you know brilliant all-round effort this time it was Matt Kelly four for 41 midnight in Joel Paris three for 55 Hardy Morris picking up a wicket each but in Morris's case as I mentioned before it was the, the captain Hanscom left them 93 to get they got it one down in, in 25 overs and appropriately I think Jeff it was Cameron Bancroft who was out there at the end 39 not out batting with Teague Wiley who started the, the season with a century on debut the teenager so a great moment in his young career an unbeaten 43 unfortunately Sam Whiteman made his eighth duck of the season poor bastard yeah. however he, he did he did captain them to the shield win and he has got a county contract so he um, has more cricket in him yet well well, you did talk about players who you could make a case for being in the test team and, you know, there's always that 
that question as to who's the next wicketkeeper in if you if your current one has a, an issue and needs to drop out. And uh, look, Sam Whiteman's season does give a big boost to the case of Jimmy Pearson of Queensland, who, <laughs> who who has to get in the conversation at some point. We keep saying it. I keep saying it anyway. I've been on the Pearson train <laughs> for years. It's not quite the Kane train, um, but it is the, the JJ Pearson train. Um, yeah, I mean, Sam Whiteman has been a great performer for a long time but he, he does he has a he has a bit of the Marcus Norths the, yeah. the high low you know it, it's it's 150 or nothing so you know that 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 isn't um, always what you're looking for maybe a, a wicketkeeper who consistently makes 30 or 40 is more use than one who occasionally turns in a match winning hand so Bancroft finishes with 945 runs at 59 for the season leading the comp. I already mentioned Sutherland's 41 at 20 for the wickets. But the rest of the WA bowlers, Matt Kelly comes in fifth with 35 wickets at 16 in eight matches. Lance Morris, 31 at 20 in six. And then Joel Paris, 27 at 17. So th- th- there's no escape when you're playing the Whackers, especially in WA. It's their 17th Shield title and second on the trot, as you mentioned before, both of them over Victoria. And that clean sweep that we mentioned with the, the one-day and the and the Big Bash. I know the Big Bash is a separate team technically, but, you know, it's all part of the same setup over there at, at Perth. Just to give some context around that, New South Wales have won the Shield 47 times, Victoria 32, and then WA 17, South Australia 13. With, with a, after, after conceding a massive head start, let's, yes. let's be clear, yes. after, they, they weren't playing in it until the 1970s. Yes, if you root maths that, you can probably say that Queensland are... Since 1994-95, how have they gone? They're probably... WA are bannermaning Shield titles since they came in. Yes, yes. And and Queensland since their first one is my point there, I suppose, Mm, that they since they they broke the duck and Tasmania have won three and you you chuck in what they're achieving as a T20 side and all the Australian players they're producing. It's a pretty special era for Western Australian cricket. So congratulations to them over at the Wacker. I can't see anybody beating them them next year either because, you know, whenever they seemingly have someone picked for Australia, they just replace them with another star. So back to back for the Wackers. And uh, a last note on some goings on in the men's games. Uh, Stephen Smith with his <laughs> hostage video that he popped up online during the week. Very excited to be going back to India uh, after just getting home from India. He's going to the IPL. Uh, this is, I mean, I feel kind of dirty almost talking about this because this is exactly what they wanted. You know, do a bit of, do a bit of social media clickbaity stuff. Ooh, Steve Smith's going to the IPL, but not as a player, as a commentator. We're just doing someone else's advertising for them at this point. Yeah, it's the quote. I am joining an exceptional team in India. Pause, pause, pause. As someone said on on Twitter, he doesn't blink. That must be how he makes so many runs. His eyes are just able to remain open the whole time. That's his comparative advantage. But yes, it, the initial thing was, wow, he's he's playing IPL, isn't he? Isn't he playing for Sussex? But no, he's doing some telly and he'll be playing county cricket as planned in the build-up to the World Test Championship and the Ashes and all the rest. All right, Jeff, as promised, next up, we're talking to Anesha Ghosh about the WPL Finals Weekend. It's Final Word of Adam Collins I have with me down the line from India, Anesha Ghosh, who's been covering diligently the Women's Premier League. We've been promising Anesha to A, get you on at some point and B, uh, have a, a proper wrap-up conversation of the Women's Premier League and, and here we are doing just that. And I'm, I'm catching you just before you're flying out to the, uh, the Fair Break Invitational in Hong Kong we'll, where we will catch up next week. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Adam. Yes, looking forward to meeting you at uh, the Fair Break Invitational 2023. 
I've just returned uh, to my hometown, Calcutta, for half a day to collect some of my gear after having wrapped up uh, the inaugural Women's Premier League in Mumbai. It was quite uh, a memorable tournament and looking forward to the second edition of what was a memorable inaugural edition of the fair break in the day. Let, let's zoom into what happened over the weekend in India, then go back to the, the broader picture and, and your reflections on the tournament as a whole. So in the Eliminator, Mumbai uh, ended up smashing the, the UP Warriors. We, we were quite taken by the Z on the end of the Warriors name uh, in our coverage on our <laughs> podcast here. Um, thanks in no small part to Izzy Wong's hat trick, Mumbai making 182 for four, Nat Siva Brunt 72 not out from 38 balls, if you don't mind, with help from a Amelia Kerr, Hayley Matthews, Nyasta Kapadia. Warriors all out for 110. They were three for 21 early after losing Healy, which was also a wicket of Izzy Wong. And they got McGrath also in the power play. But then Wong goes bang, bang, bang in the 13th over, and it's pretty much game over. So it meant that it was going to be a Delhi Capitals-Mumbai Indians final. Two of the the bigger teams in the IPL, Anesha, who... who Who've, um, who've invested now in women's cricket thoroughly and have been rewarded accordingly by by reaching the, the final of the first edition. Absolutely. And if you look at the way the two teams, Mumbai Indians and the Delhi Capitals, finished in the league stage, they were the top two ranked teams. Delhi Capitals picked the Mumbai Indians on the on the top of the points table by virtue of a superior net run rate. The, but both of them heading into the tournament were really the teams to beat. The third team, which also was something of a team to beat, but really, really fell short of expectations by a huge margin, was the Royal Challengers Bangalore, who royally messed up mm. their campaign. Mm. But uh, sticking to the way Meg Lanning let her side, Meg Lanning, as you would have expected from a captain and a batter of her caliber, literally led from the front, finished as the tournament's highest run getter. Not surprising at all, because she was sort of struggling at uh, the start of the 2020 T20 the 2023-2020 World Cup in February in South Africa. But as the World Cup progressed, thanks to India giving her a truckload of uh, gifts, you know, full tosses in the semi-final, which they eventually end up, ended up losing, Lanning found her form and she carried that form into the inaugural Women's Premier League. And uh, as far as the Mumbai Indians concerned, they have had three of the world's best all-rounders, in my view, they had the services of Haley Matthews, um, Amelia Kerr, Natalie Siverbrandt. All of them came to the party, and it wasn't just them performing in in flashes. They were consistent throughout the tournament, so they could really rely on these three uh, overseas recruits. They are not the Aussies. They they had they did not have as big an Australian presence as. Say, if you look at the Gujarat Giants or the UP Warriors, they went with a more England-heavy kind of overseas contingent. And Charlotte Edwards did make some of those right calls. And some of the right calls were also made by Julian Goswami, the mentor and bowling coach, in terms of recruiting some top-notch domestic cricketers like Saika Ishak. Very few people knew about Saika Ishak on the international circuit, but she's been uh, a chronic, a serial performer of sorts in the domestic uh, competitions for Bengal where Julian Goswami uh, has played for a long time and she's now a mentor for age group cricketers. And for Julian Goswami to have brought in that insight on the auction table, which is why it's so very important to have people familiar with the landscape, with the ecosystem, making those right decisions at the auction table. And I think Mumbai Indians won big at the auction table, which is what reflected in the way they performed in the league. And Harmanpreet Kaur, I think, 
she was also striking immensely well in that uh, T20 World Cup in February. She had perhaps the most heartbreaking of defeats as captain and player in that semi-final, that run out, which I'm pretty sure you've discussed uh, at length on your uh, podcast against Australia. It really cut short India's campaign. And as she has gone on to say, Harmanpreet did go on, go on to say several times over that the Indian contingent, as much as the overseas contingent at the Women's Premier League, barely had any time to collect themselves, dwell on their successes or defeats. But the Australians, you know, 15, 16 of them turned up at the WPL. And as far as the Indians are concerned, they barely had any time to process the heartbreak of the semi-final. And here they were gearing up for a media frenzy that uh, none of these players, Indians or otherwise, had ever faced in their lifetimes, in their careers before. And uh, the tournament kicked off even before they knew. But as Harmanpreet Kaur very crucially mentioned after the post-final presser, where she appeared really happy, really cheerful, quite a far cry from that semi-final, post-semi-final press conference in Cape Town, which I remember covering. She was holding back tears. And uh, we all know, we've all seen that ICC clip with, of hers with Anjum Chopra. She was in tears after she left the press conference room at Newlands. But at the Raban Stadium's Kuchbihar room in Mumbai on the night of the 27th, the press conference began around uh, 12, 10 uh, at night or in the morning, whichever way you want to put it. And Harmanpreet Kaur was at her most ebullient self. And she acknowledged the fact that because the turnaround time between the two tournaments, the World Cup and the WPL was, was so short, it actually enabled her to move on very, very quickly. And all she needed to do is just focus on Mumbai Indians because this was a new group she had to start out with and literally start from scratch and look the legacy they've already created in the inaugural edition, the first ever champions of the Women's Premier League in India. Yeah, that's a great summary. So, like, as you point out, the, the, the Mumbai Indians and Delhi Capitals so they had such a, a successful recruiting spree, I suppose. You look at the, the top five run scorers in the comp, Lanning, Nat Brunt, Talia McGrath, Harman Preetkor, Hayley Matthews, who was also a player of the tournament, 271 runs and, and 16 wickets. And, and the same applies for... Uh, for the most part, for the bowlers. And Ishak was the only bowler in the top five who doesn't have, I suppose, international name recognition. So Matthews, Eccleston, Wong, Millie Kerr. Then you've got sort of Kim Garth, Shikha Pandey, Nat Sivabrunt, Ash Gardner, who was the, the big money recruitment at the start of the tournament. So you reach the final with these two you know, powerhouses of, uh, uh, of Delhi and, and Mumbai. And it's a close and great final. I mean, it doesn't look like it on paper with Mumbai winning by seven wickets, but they did have to hold their nerve. I mean, Delhi got to 131 for nine, uh, thanks largely to Meg Lanning. And, and Shikha Pandey at the end batting with Radha Yadav, putting on 52 for the 10th wicket after they were in all sorts to drag them from 79 for nine up to 131 for nine. They took 20 off Wong's last over and they took 16 from the 20th over bowled by Nat Siva Brunt. Wong had taken three wickets earlier, albeit or with full tosses, but you know, that, that happens. That's that's cricket. Then um, she had a, pr- a pretty good tournament overall. Uh, then Mumbai were behind the rate when they had uh, Harman Precor and Nat Brunt batting through the middle overs, but they did stabilise things after losing Matthews inside the power play. I think they were two for 23. They took it to three for 95 when Capsi um, executed a brilliant run out to start the 17th over, and that was Harman Preet. You mentioned the run out in the World Cup. Semi being run out again, uh, but she did make 37 and did have that stand of 72 with, with Siva, but they were left 37 from 23 balls. Enter Muley Kerr, who um, batted all the way through to the end with Siva Brunt. It was a great finish, the reverse 
off uh, Capsi in that same over after they lost Harman Preet to get their momentum going again, Mumbai. Then there was a tidy over from Shikapande, leaving all this pressure in the final two overs, but they went after Jess Jonathan, and that's not easy to do. Um, that, that's that class sweep shot from Sivabrunt. To reach her 50, then Kerr goes bang, bang to finish that over and effectively finish the tournament. So Mumbai Indians get the job done under the, the captaincy. Well, it, I, I, I mean, the captaincy of Harman Preet, but the coaching of Charlotte Edwards. They had Julian Goswami, as you're describing there. They had Lydia Greenway with all of her experience in that dugout. And I suppose that's that's more where I wanted to take the conversation away from the cricket itself and more to the, the piece you wrote in The Guardian last week about the importance of the competition. This ended up being a almost like a, a global all-stars comp, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And the media attention it was generating, those physical advertisements you were writing about, huge skyscrapers in Mumbai with massive pictures of the papers that would have been inconceivable uh, when, well, when both of us started covering women's cricket. Absolutely, Adam. And on the eve of the final came by far the biggest surprise. The Air India building, which has been, uh, you know, a sort of landmark in Mumbai, it stands with pride uh, on the Nariman Point overlooking the Arabian Sea. The Air India building was lit up in the colours of all five franchises, the WPL logo. Um, the two captains were projected onto the Air India building in the form of a light show, Meg Lanning and Harman Peetkor with the Tata WPL trophy on, on a building as iconic as that. Remember, it was also around that, you know, vicinity that the, uh, uh, the 2611 terrorist attacks took place. So there's a lot of history around that, that location, around that building. And to see women's cricket take pride of place in that manner, I've never seen like that, uh, you know, in my career or in, or in my lifetime. And pretty much... All of the people I was doing box pops with, um, you know, youngsters, young people, old people, neither they had come across something as in your face and advertisement around women's sport in our country. So credit to the BCCI, sure, it has taken longer than it should have for something uh, along the lines of a, of a men's IPL uh, for the women to get off. But the way the BCCI went about marketing and packaging the tournament it's been it's been really quite something and to see that event transpire pan out uh, in front of the air india building and also the way the five franchises uh, marketed their teams you know really put out content pieces of pieces after pieces on their social media channels i think for the longest time those of us have been covering women's cricket in india i think there has been a, a uh, an acute paucity of content around women's cricketers for the longest time. I mean, even if you look at publications, it was given or meted out step dotly, step, you know, suddenly treatment for the longest time in terms of how editorial decisions are made. But to see so many publications at the press box, national and international, send their correspondence every single game, it was a first for me. I mean, it it is what that eventually will send out the messaging around the WPL to people who take, you know, who buy newspapers every day. And the print, spread, print presence in India, especially in regional languages, is still very strong. You know, it's all not digital. To see the regional and English language newspapers and digital agencies, digital publications, sending their uh, journalists to the Cricket Club of India press box and the D.Y. Parkland Stadium, the two venues for the inaugural WPL, I think that will really help create a legacy of literature around women's cricket, which has been 
which has been sort of non-existent for a uh, to a great extent. Yeah, that that was really clear to me at the 2017 World Cup when the tournament started and Madali Raj had like. 5,000 Twitter followers or something like that. Like, how's this possible when she's got this extraordinary career and, and, and the population of India? But that's obviously changed an awful lot. It rather sort of focuses the attention on uh, the precursor to the WPL, the, um, I can't remember what it was called now, but how ill-considered it was to leave it this long. Uh, what was it, the um, the challenge or the... IPL, the Women's T20 Challenge. Whatever, whatever it was, it looks ridiculous now that they waited all this time to, to get where they are, given it's now already the second most expensive uh, or second most lucrative uh, league in the world behind the men's IPL. And it looked like the attendances followed suit. I mean, they, they, they weren't they weren't getting 50,000 to a game as Australia and India did uh, last year. But, you know, crowds that were about halfway to that mark and they, they did a good job of making sure that uh, was it the girls and women didn't have to pay to get in and they were quite cheap tickets for men as well? That's right. So throughout the league phase, entry was free for female spectators. And male spectators had to pay anywhere between 100 to 400, if I'm not mistaken. But come the eliminator and the final, free entry was no longer existent, which is what made the progression of the tournament quite interesting follow in terms of how the BCCI was looking at testing, you know, various uh, various scenarios in terms of how to really market uh, in-stadia attendances uh, for, the, for the WPL. Uh, and 30,000 people turning up, 30,000 plus, in fact, the Eliminator had about 37,000 people turning up. And going by the looks of it, the CCI, which has uh, much lower capacity than the D.Y. Bartle Stadium, where the capacity is around 49, 48,000, whereas CCI has about 18, 19,000, if you take into consideration all the seats that have been locked because of uh, you know various stages being set, uh, platforms having been erected. The final, I would say, had close to easily over 16, 17,000 people. So that's nearly 75,000, um, nearly 75% of the stadium having been filled out. To my surprise, and what I would rate as one of the topmost ingredients that should be looked upon as a success or looked upon as a testimony to the success of the WPL is the weekday attendances. I mean, people in Mumbai and Navi Mumbai turning up in numbers on Monday afternoons for 3 p.m. local time matches and for 7.30 p.m. local time matches, uh, what was their motivation? I mean, that's something I, I did ask a few of the male spectators because the number of men coming in to watch these games were far more than the female spectators who, as I mentioned earlier, had free entry. So men were the actual ticketed paid spectators who were coming in. So what was their motivation like to walk in at 3 p.m.? Uh, in sweltering heat, you know, Mumbai, Navi Mumbai was hot. It wasn't as though they were sitting in air conditioning um, all through the game. So that speaks to the appetite that is there around women's cricket, as we saw during the India versus Australia bilateral series at these very two venues in December 2022. And the D.Y. Patel Stadium really has done well. Credit to the, you know, the organizers there because the D.Y. Patel Stadium in October last year hosted the final of the FIFA Under-17 Women's World Cup. It was one of the many venues across India. But the way they were able to interest the local crowd, D.Y. Patel Stadium is located located some 35 kilometers off Mumbai. So Navi Mumbai is not part of Mumbai. You have to make significant effort to get to Navi Mumbai uh, from any which where you're coming from around Maharashtra, especially if you are located, if you are based in Mumbai. So, so, so the, the options that you have really in terms of conveyance is 
either take a train, board a bus. Um, if you have a private car, nothing like it, but you cannot get there easily. So that also speaks volumes about the intent behind uh, people turning up in numbers. So there is appetite for women's cricket. Uh, there is appetite for women's sport. The 2022 December India-Australia series set the template of sorts, which is why the BCCI eventually chose Levi Parkland Stadium, Navi Mumbai, and the Cricket Club of India, Brayburn Stadium in Mumbai as the two venues, and both venues delivered and delivered daily. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's the home of women's cricket now. Absolutely, there, there's no there's no doubting that after what that's happened at that ground, and as you say, the the Australia series last year, and, and now being the uh, one of the two homes of the WPL, you could see Jay Shah in the crowd laughing uh, towards the end of that final. He'd be just uh, uh, laughing through his wallet as well, not literally, but the BCCI's coffers and and how this will um, how this will add to that over time. We saw with the, the TV money that came in beforehand, the numbers of people watching as well for advertising free streams easy to access you know that having a, a game at half past seven every night that they seem to get a lot right in terms of the the build-up to this even if there were things we could poke at like for example you could and there are negatives I mean or, or at least uh, areas worth criticizing such as the what I felt were regressive boundaries so I thought we'd moved away from 45 meter boundaries in women's cricket but there was a desire to see high scoring so that was a that was a bit of a throwback and a mockery made of that when Sophie Devine hit like a 100 meter six or something like that and you know there were other sort of um, I, I guess complicating factors in Asia around overseas players in the men's IPL, there is enough local Indian talent that you can, well, this is my uh, my understanding of it, when you are comprising your 11 and you have your overseas allotment filled, yeah, there'll be a player who misses out, but it doesn't seem to affect the team too badly. Here, when Grace Harris had to miss games or Shabin Ismail was, was rotated out, it seemed to really affect the team balance because the next step is obviously going to be making sure the Indian domestic players get, get taken to the next level as well. And I suppose that's in keeping with the hashtag, right? It's only the beginning. Absolutely. And to that end, I think the team that really stood out in delivering or living up to the essence, the principle of that hashtag, and also the principle behind starting a women's Premier League, which is to groom the next generations of Indian domestic talent to build a proper feeder line to the Indian national team, which is still bereft of a world title. The senior team is is a World Cup-less side. Uh, even after all these years, so many of the stalwarts have uh, retired. Julian Goswami, Nathali Raj hung up their boots without a world title. And here is Harman for uh, who keeps making these uh, World Cup finals, leading, their, leading her side to the World Cup uh, knockouts, but eventually falls short. And the way the UP Warriors really um, bought or thrust their domestic talent to the fore, I think they deserve a shout out on this show. And uh, they have been covered pretty well as well. Because Alisa Haley at the start of the WPL, you know, told the press that her she's won everything that is there to be won, really. You know, either at the, at the WBBL or as far as the Australian side is concerned. But here she was on a mission to ensure that the next generation of uh, uncapped and capped Indian talent finds the right kind of encouragement and exposure through the uh, through the 22 match league. And she walked the talk because here we saw Parshavi Chopra, an under-19 World Cup winner, having won the inaugural under-19 World Cup campaign under Shupali Varma in January. 
Pashavi is a leg spinner. She was outstanding in the eliminator and she got several other opportunities. Shweta Sehrawat, the vice captain of the India under-19 inaugural World Cup winning side, also part of the UP Warriors who got uh, who got uh, got to make you know several appearances in the starting eleven. So they were not just warming the bench. Maybe to that end, Delhi Capitals led by Meg Lanning played somewhat somewhat conservatively because it was only Minnu Mani. Uh, the uncapped Indian who got uh, got a look in Sneha Deepthi is another very good domestic uncapped player who warmed the bench essentially. But Mumbai Indians, for their part, also gave several of the uncapped uh, players uh, opportunities. Saika Ishak, as we mentioned earlier, she was outstanding. Uh, she reaped uh, great dividends for uh, not just Mumbai Indians, but I think she has given a glimpse into what sort of domestic talent there can be if you do the right kind of scouting. And Jintimani Kalita, um, Amanjot Kaur, who has played only one international match, having debuted during the Tri-Series featuring South Africa earlier this year. Amanjot Kaur, Jintimani Kalita for Mumbai Indians stood out with their fielding. You know, If I could sort of pick holes in terms of the quality of the WPL, the fielding standards could have been better especially from the from the Indian players. Vajintamani Kalita and Amanjot Kaur literally won them uh, a couple of games by just effecting those runouts, saving those boundaries in the deep. So as far as giving opportunities to Indian talent is concerned, and as, as I mentioned in that spin piece in The Guardian, or as you rightly spoke of the hashtag, this is just the beginning. I think we've only just started to see where Indian domestic talent is, but it doesn't really make much sense for a tournament like this unless you give them opportunities in the starting 11. To that end, Alyssa Healy and John Lewis really deserves a lot of praise because I wouldn't be surprised if uh, UP Warriors who finished third in the competition, having had having been eliminated in the eliminator, want to win the title next year because they have seen what their youngsters can bring. And Deepthi Sharma might go on to lead the UP Warriors someday, who is the, was the deputy uh, to Alisa Healy for this season. So to give opportunities to youngsters and Indian talent is also very important. And for a for an overseas captain to have bought into that principle the way Alisa Healy did, I think uh, that is also a victory for WPL and UP Warriors. And Esha, that's a lovely nod for the future as we uh, finish our conversation. Thanks so much for jumping on on a day where I know you're traveling again. Uh, you've been so busy recently. You've done a great job covering the inaugural WPL. Uh, thanks for your insights today on the final word and looking forward to talking to you at fair break next week. Absolutely, Adam. Look forward to that. Final words saying goodbye to season 13. Thanks to Anesha for joining us. We've been meaning to get her on for a while. So good to be able to tap into her brain there about the competition that she was following so closely and one she's advocated for for as long as I've known her. So that must have been, I guess, for a lot of the journos in India who've been writing about women's cricket, quite rewarding seeing it come to fruition. And good for everybody, I think, who's had an investment in the game over a period of time. The important thing is that it has happened. You know, it's imperfect. Maybe there weren't enough teams. Maybe the Boundaries are too short. Maybe there are things to improve. I'm sure there will be in the seasons to come, but it means that there will be seasons to come. There will be season two. There will be season three. You know, the the money is involved in it and that means that the the product, as it were, will continue. The, um, the, the experiment will be more than an experiment. So that's the main thing to take out of this, I think, is that we've got something to improve upon. You've got to have something first before you can make it better.
Yeah, spot on. And there'll be season two and season three of the WPL. There'll be season 14 of The Final Word next week because uh, guess what? Tomorrow, I think even yesterday, come to think of it, the county warm-up games have begun. I'll be at the Oval taking a look on Friday. I'm not even sure who they're playing, to be honest with you. Just doing a bit of testing there in the broadcast boxes. But yes, this is the, um, the last weekly episode we will record in March and we tick over to April. And that is technically... England's time, and thus, mm. with our naming conventions over the years, it'll be season 14, episode one. I have no idea how many eps we're up to in totality. Maybe we should tally that up before 600 next week. 600 and we, uh, something, yeah. 600 and something, and let the good times roll. If you want to uh, contribute to helping us do as we do, and that'll include a weekend show this week of story time, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you do still want to run the, the, the Edinburgh Half Marathon it, it probably isn't too late, but you're going to have to get in touch with me very soon. Final word cricket at gmail.com or just get in touch with Jeff or myself uh, on social media in all the usual places. Speaking of social media, thanks to Ken Ponsonby for um, posting a bunch of great videos for us and promoting the work that we're doing. We're grateful to be able to do a bit more on that than we have in the past and always grateful to all of the the patrons that we have who've, um, who've um, shown such loyal, loyal support to us through the course of season 13. Right, this has been... The final word? Oh, I can't believe it's the end of season 13, the the luckiest season of them all, and I feel lucky, Adam, to have been able to hang out with you many times a week over the last, I don't know, seven or eight months that we've been making this particular season. Uh, it has been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, we'll see you later. Thanks for listening. I had to go about it, write it out and find